For some of you, it may have been a long time since you were in kindergarten. But I can remember being in kindergarten and trying to find the elusive Elemino. Now, if you're not familiar with Elemino, you've probably never been a kindergarten teacher. But I remember there was this letter, Elemino, that I couldn't find in the alphabet. Uh, I'd heard about it. I'd sung about it. But I, I just couldn't find it. Uh, I found all the other letters, A, B, C. But there between K and P, there was no Elemino. I would sing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, Elemino, P. But there was no Elemino there. But I couldn't find it because I was looking for the wrong thing. Now, I would say a majority of my adult life, I have been burdened for revival. But frankly, when I was younger, I didn't understand what revival was. And so I, I was looking for the wrong thing. I was looking for the Elemino instead of the L and the M and the N and the O. So this morning, I think it would be helpful if we understood what, what is revival, understanding, identifying revival, what is it so that we know what we're praying for and we know what we're looking for. Now, let me start with some things that revival is not and, um, a lot of people think that revival is a, is a feeling that we have. You know, it's a, that happy, joyous feeling. And surely when revival comes, there's great joy. There is. But that's not what revival is. Revival isn't something that you work up. Revival isn't something that you plan. Revival isn't something that you demand from God. God, send us revival today. Um, it doesn't work that way. Revival isn't just strangeness. Back in the 1990s, when I was younger and, like I said, interested in revival, there was a laughing revival in Toronto. Uh, people would just break out laughing, and they called that revival. I, I don't know. That's, that's not what we're looking for. Other revivals that have included revivals, excuse me, so-called revivals, have included people barking like dogs, people fainting and passing out. Those are not necessarily revivals just because they're strangeness. Revival is not uniquely American. Revival is not a uniquely American experience. Some of the revivals I'm going to mention today are from India, from Wales, from Manchuria, from Korea. The revivals have happened um, all over the world. And revival is not simply everything working out for us. We have faced, I have faced personally, and perhaps you've faced, several of you I know you've faced, Unusual obstacles and had unusual burdens placed upon you recently. And sometimes I think we get the false impression that what revival means is that all of a sudden everything just goes right for us. It's like when you realize, oh, the reason my car isn't moving is I have the emergency brake on. And you put the, take the emergency brake off and all of a sudden the car moves freely. That, that's not revival. In fact, during times of revival, there can be extra persecution. There can be more difficulties. In fact, sometimes revivals have caused people's deaths. Um, so revival isn't just everything going right for us. Revival is that life of the Spirit refreshed and renewed in us. Revival is life. It's a fresh enthusiasm for the things of God. Revival is a renewed energy to accomplish God's will for my life. Not my own ideas, not to see done what I've wanted done all these years and it hasn't happened yet and suddenly it'll happen. That's not revival. Revival is life from above. Jesus said to us in John 10.10, 10, 
Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Not just have it abundantly, have it more abundantly. And revival is that more abundant life. If I can give you one short definition of revival, this is not the only definition and it's not a complete or exhaustive definition, but revival is God's power flowing freely through God's people so that God is glorified. Revival is God's power flowing freely through God's people so that God is glorified. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 24, the very last chapter in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24, we're going to look at verses 45 through 49 here in a minute. And then we're going to also look at the book of Acts. So find the book of Luke, and then to your right, you find the book of John. It's right next to Luke. And then beyond the book of John is the book of Acts. But some of you recall that the book of Luke and the book of Acts have the same human author. Now, the whole Bible is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit caused every word in Hebrew and Greek to be written. I have no doubt about that. But yes, he used human instruments. And if you remember, the human instrument that God used for the book of Luke and the book of Acts was a doctor named Luke. Okay, so these two books have some identity, some similarities to them. It is sometimes unfortunate that the book of John comes between them. But we're going to look at Luke 24. Then we're going to look at Acts, uh, several chapters in the book of Acts. And then we're going to jump back to the middle of your Bible, Psalm 51. But we're not there yet. I'll let you know when we get there. Now, the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. But sometimes I think it would be better titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Because in the book of Acts, we see time and time again where the Holy Spirit works through his people to accomplish God's purposes. When we begin the book of Acts in chapter one, there's about 120 people that are gathered together as a group of believers. Jesus has died. He's risen again. He's ascended up into heaven. Several hundred people have seen Jesus, but not everyone believes. And there's only about 120 when we get to the book at the end, and they're all concentrated in one city, Jerusalem. When we get to the book of the end of the book of Acts, get to the end of the book of Acts, we see there are literally hundreds of churches from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, back into Babylon and beyond, filled with dozens and sometimes thousands of Christians each. And the book of Acts is a journal of how that was accomplished. And the first thing that you'll notice throughout the book of Acts is that the power is always God's power. Look with me, Luke chapter 24. I'm going to pick it up in verse 45. Let me read it, but you listen as I read out loud. Luke 24, 45. Then opened he, this is Jesus, their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he and said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. This is another um, example of Jesus' commission to his disciples. He says, you're witnesses that I died, that I rose the third day. You're witnesses that I'm telling you it's important to preach repentance and remission of sins. But look at verse 49. And behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry ye or wait 
in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. He says, here's your job, but wait a minute. <laughs> Before you just run out and try to do this job on your own, I want you to wait until you have power from on high. That's the power we're going to talk about today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder that the power is your power. It's not us trying to accomplish what we want or even us trying to accomplish what you want. It's your commission and it's your empowerment and we need both. So Father, help us open our eyes today to truth, open our eyes to obstacles in our own lives, open our eyes to the importance of prayer and the importance of obedience. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God promises to his people his power here in Luke chapter 24. Again, verse 49, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Now go to the book of Acts. I mentioned that we'll be looking at that. Acts chapter one and verse eight is a well-known verse, but Acts 1, eight is simply a restatement of what Jesus said in Luke 29, 49, 24, 49. Acts 1, eight says this, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, that's the power, here's the commission, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. God promises his power. Now, I understand this passage not only to apply to the 12 apostles, well, 11 apostles, there'll be a 12th one added in Judas's place later. But I'm, I don't think it just applies to those apostles. I believe this power that's promised applies today to God's people, to you and to me. And we can have the same power that they had in the book of Acts to accomplish God's will. And how did they receive this power? Well, they received it by God's sovereign grace. God just said, here, here's my power. But you know what they did while they waited for that power? They prayed. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. These all continued with one accord in prayer. They prayed. Every great revival that I have read about has started with a small group of Christians who believe that God's power to change the world is still as effective today as it was in the book of Acts, and they begin to pray. They pray in faith. Again, we don't demand revival. They didn't say, God, you have to send us revival. But they prayed in faith, believing the same God that empowered his apostles in Acts chapter 1 and 2. We'll see it in Acts chapter 2. Is the same God that could empower them. Let me read to you a little bit about the Welsh revival. The great Welsh revival in 1904 and 1905 was unquestionably the outcome of prayer. A year before R.A. Torrey began his work in Cardiff, it was announced that he was going to Cardiff and for a year... Prayer went up from thousands of devoted Christians that there would not that there would be not only a revival in Cardiff, that's the city, but throughout Wales, that's the whole region. When R.A. Torrey reached Cardiff, he found that early morning meetings had been held in Penarth, one of the suburbs of Cardiff, for months. Yet at first, the work went very slowly. There were great crowds, most enthusiastic singing, but little manifestation of real convicting and regenerating power. A day of fasting and prayer was appointed. This was observed not only in Cardiff, but in different parts of Wales. There came an immediate turn of the tide. The power of God fell. On that day, 
At a meeting held in another part of Wales by a few devoted men of God, the power of God was manifested in the most remarkable way. For the whole year of our meetings, for a whole year after our meetings closed in Cardiff, the work went on in that city, meetings every night with large numbers of conversions. The week following the meetings in Cardiff, a minister associated with the work went up into one of the valleys of Wales and there was a mighty manifestation of the power of God with large numbers of conversions. And all over Wales, the work of God continued, largely without human instruments except in the way of prayer. 100,000 conversions were reported in one year because people prayed. The power is God's power. This is uh, from India. A convention for the deepening of spiritual life was held in August of 1905 at a town whose name I cannot pronounce. 300 Punjabi Christians assembled with a few missionaries. Much prayer had been made beforehand and an atmosphere of prayer was maintained throughout the convention. A room set apart for prayer was occupied practically all the time. At first, a few only spent the night there, but towards the close, it was filled from night till morning with those who were singing, praying, and praising as the Lord led. Two or three did not retire for rest for over a week. They did sleep a little at a time while others were maintaining the vigil. An old saint whose numbers, whose, an old saint about 90 years old spent at least three nights there. And the prayer was not of a morbid or despairing nature, It was the shout of those who were being always led in triumph. Praise abounded. The missionaries and the Christians in Korea heard about the revival going on in India. And this is their account. After we had prayed about a month, they, so they said, we, we need to pray. I'm, I'm skipping ahead here in the story. We need to pray. They're having revival in India. We need to pray. So they prayed. And after they had prayed about a month, I now quote, a brother proposed that we stop the prayer meeting saying, we've prayed about a month and nothing unusual has come of it. We're spending a lot of time. I don't think we're justified. Let's just go on with the work as normal and each pray at home as we find it convenient. The proposal seemed plausible. However, the majority decided to continue the prayer meeting, believing that the Lord would not deny Pyongyang what he had granted to Cassia. That's the region in India. They decided to give more time to prayer instead of less. And with that view, they changed the hour from 12 to 4 o'clock, and then they were free to pray until supper time if they wished. There was little else than prayer. If anyone had an encouraging item to relate, it was given as they continued in prayer. They prayed for about four months, and they said that the result was that they all forgot about being Methodists or Presbyterians. About this time, Mr. Swallen, along with Mr. Blair, visited one of the country outstations. And while conducting the service in the usual way, many commenced weeping and confessing their sins. Mr. Swallen said he had never met with anything so strange. And he announced to him, hoping to check the wave of emotion which was sweeping over the audience. But he tried several times in vain. And in awe, he realized that another was managing that meeting. The next morning, he and Mr. Blair returned to the city rejoicing and told how God had come to the outstation and all praised God. And then you could read there's page after page after page about how God's fire swept through Korea. This is R.A. Torrey. He says this, every great awakening from that day to this has had its earthly origin in prayer. The Great Awakening in the 18th century in which Jonathan Edwards was one of the central figures began with his famous call to prayer. 
1830, there was a revival in Rochester, New York, in which Charles G. Finney was an outstanding human agent. This revival spread throughout that region of the state, and 100,000 persons were reported as having connected themselves with the churches as a result of this work. Mr. Finney himself attributed his success to the spirit of prayer which prevailed. The most important human factor in effective evangelism is prayer. Every great awakening in the history of the church from the time of the apostles until today has been the result of prayer. I'm going to continue what Tori says. He says, there have been a great many awakenings without much preaching. And there have been great awakenings with absolutely no organization. But there has never been a true awakening without much prayer. And I read to you again, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer. In Acts chapter 4, we'll see that they were threatened. The leaders, the religious and the civil leaders said, hey, you have got to quit preaching in the name of Jesus. We don't mind all this gathering people together and making a bunch of noise, but don't use the name of Jesus. And how did they respond? Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And look with me at verse 23. They've just been threatened. Acts 4, 23. They've just been threatened. Quit preaching in the name of Jesus. And in Acts 4, 23, and being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. They prayed. You can read about their prayer meeting, but I want you to notice verse 31. Skip down to verse 31, Acts 4, 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. What was the plan of the leaders? We'll just threaten these guys. We're going to put a lid on this problem. We're going to stop this problem. They're going to quit preaching if we have to kill them. And instead, what did they get? They got a church that was more excited than ever to preach the gospel. Why? Because they prayed. So why is it, why is it that we neglect to pray? How much time have you spent in this last week praying for others? How much time have you spent this last week praying for the power of God to be refreshed at Elmira Baptist Church, that is the people who are Elmira Baptist Church. Why is it that we neglect to pray? Well, frankly, we're busy. I know we're busy. I know we're busy. Uh, And prayer takes time. And sometimes I wake up in the morning and I think about all the things I have to do that day and I think, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to pray real short because I got to get into my day. But the truth is we need to set aside time to pray because what's the point of running into our day without God's power. I know we're busy and prayer takes time. We're tired. We're tired. Prayer takes mental energy. I remember watching a skit one time about prayer. The kid, the, 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 the joke was that each child was coming before God. They were pretending to be adults to pray. One kid came before God to pray and promptly fell asleep. And how many times do we say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait at the, end of, at the end of the day. I'm going to set aside time to pray. That's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm been busy all day, but I'm going to pray when I get home. We get home. We sit in our favorite, most comfortable chair, and we go to sleep. And we never pray. Now, I know prayer takes energy. Prayer is some of the hardest work that you can do. But we need to pray. 
because no great awakening has ever been started without much prayer. I think one of the reasons we neglect to pray is, frankly, we like to be in charge. We like to be in control. And prayer is an admission to God. We can't control this. We can't. I get my plan set up. I'm going to do this and this. I'm going to ask this person to do that. And then they're going to do this and then this and this. And it's going to come out this way. Now, I don't know about you. I can have all my plans. It doesn't come out this way. What I need to do is say, God, what's your plan for my day? And even if it doesn't come out the way I think God wants it to come out, that's okay. That's up to him. I have, to, I have to take my hands off my plans and say, God, what do you want me to do today? And true prayer admits our inability and turns control over to God. I think that's one of the meanings of cast all your care upon him, for he careth for you. You say, Lord, I can't control this situation. I can't help this person. I can't do this. I can't accomplish that. I don't even know where to start on this one. Sometimes we neglect to pray because, frankly, we don't think that it matters. We just don't. Now, I don't know how many of you ever get into the kitchen to bake something, but I know I've looked at a long list of ingredients in some item that I want to cook and thought to myself, what does it really matter if I put ground mustard in this dish? I'm going to leave the ground mustard out. Why do I leave the ground mustard out? Because I don't think it matters. And frankly, let's be honest, one of the reasons many of us don't pray is because we just don't think it matters. You say, well, I don't know how to pray. You know, there is no formula to prayer. There's no particular words. I was praying with someone recently. They started, well, good morning, Father. I thought, that, yeah, that's a prayer. <laughs> then they started telling God how good he was, how great he was, praising him. There's no formula to prayer. You don't have to start with a certain words. Now, sometimes it does help to pray scripture back to God. And I often find, as I'm reading my Bible in the mornings, that there's a particular passage that expresses what my heart is to God. And I'll start my prayer by reading that passage to God. Ah, that's fine. But there's no formula. You say, I don't know what to say. I tell you what to say. Tell God what's on your heart. Now, the amazing thing is he knows anyway. You're not, he's never surprised. God has never said to me, oh, is that really the issue? No, no. But a lot of times I said, oh, that really is the issue. <laughs> Tell God what's on your heart because it does matter whether we pray. And when God, when the power is God's power, God's power does extraordinary things. Acts chapter 2. And I know that I'm doing a lot of reading today, but I want you to see this for yourself. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 11, and I'm going to read rather fast because I want to get a lot more in. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as if a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Notice that. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. You saw in... in um, Acts 4, verse 31, that when the place was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and the Spirit, excuse me, and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noise abroad, the multitude came together and they were confounded. Here's why they were surprised, why they were amazed, why they were stumped. Because that every man heard them speak in his own language. 
You say, well, how many languages were there? Well, look at verse 8. How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, people from Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, around Cyrene, strangers from Rome, Cretans, Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues. They weren't just babbling. They were speaking languages that people said, oh, that's my language. It would be like you coming in here today and hearing me speak in a language I had never studied. Now, I can say about five words in Spanish. The important ones, taco, burrito, right? You know those words. But let's imagine I got up here and I started preaching in Spanish as good as Guillermo could preach in Spanish. We'd all just be, what happened to pastor? That's what happened here, except they didn't just speak one language. You can see the list. And some of these, lang- these languages aren't all related to each other. It's not like Spanish and Portuguese. I have a friend, he speaks really good Spanish. And he also can speak some Portuguese. He says he, even, he can even get by on French if he, if he asks people to speak slowly. It's not like that at all. These are completely, sometimes from different language families entirely. Now, if you've never tried to learn another language, you are missing out. It's maybe the hardest, intellectually, the hardest thing you will ever do is to train your mind to speak in a language that you're not familiar with. And here, these people, they can just do it instantly. That's the power of God doing extraordinary things. But even more extraordinary than speaking in other languages, and I want you to understand this, more extraordinary than speaking in other languages is the boldness that they had to preach. Now, let me ask you, just a few weeks prior, prior, a few months prior, when Jesus was standing in the high priest's house and he was on trial, what had Peter done? When Jesus was on trial, three times, not once, not twice, three times, Peter had denied even knowing Jesus because he was afraid that if he was identified as one of Jesus' disciples, they might kill him too. And he didn't want that. Three times he denied knowing Jesus. Now let's look at what he does publicly here. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter's preaching, and this is what Peter says to literally thousands of people. Here's what Peter says to thousands of people in Acts 2, 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now that's a pretty hefty charge. You guys knew that he was approved of God. You knew he was God's man and you killed him. Now how did Peter go from denying Jesus three times, being so scared, so timid, that after Jesus had been crucified and buried, he was hiding out in a locked room. How did he go from that to saying to a group of thousands, you killed the Christ? It's the power of the Holy Ghost. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. God's power does extraordinary things, and God's power is unstoppable. I already mentioned the threats, the dangerous threats, in chapter 4, and yet, at the end of chapter 4, they're not shivering. 
in their boots. They're not locking the doors. They're not running away from Jerusalem. They're praying for power to preach. In chapter 5, sin and deception creeps into the church. But that doesn't stop God's power. I mentioned earlier that sometimes in a revival, people will die. Well, in this revival, guess what? Two people died. But God's power was unstoppable. Disunity threatened the church. There was a complaint that some of the widows were being neglected in chapter 6. But even that didn't stop revival. When God's power flows freely through God's people, life does not get easier. Let me say that again. When God's power flows freely through God's people, life does not get easier. Sometimes it gets harder, or usually gets harder. But God's power is unstoppable. And God's power changes people. It changed the timid, fearful disciples into bold preachers. I mentioned earlier the revival in India. One of the missionary ladies was there to see it. Her name was Helen Dyer. And she wrote this. One thing to be borne in mind is that since the days of Pentecost, there is no record of the sudden and direct work of the Spirit of God upon the souls of men that has not been accompanied by events more or less abnormal. Now, again, I'm not talking about barking like dogs, people passing out in the aisles. But it is abnormal for people to breach boldly Jesus Christ. It is abnormal for 3,000 people to be converted, Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 4, it tells us 5,000 people were converted. Later in the book of Acts, it says that they were, the number of believers were multiplied. That's God's power changing people, taking people who are not God's children and ushering them into the kingdom of God. But revival also involves God's power to cleanse his own people. I want to read to you a rather long, uh, true event that happened in uh, southern West Virginia. It seemed like whenever I was traveling on the East Coast, I could nine times, no, that's, that's an exaggeration. Let me be honest. About half the people I met, I'd say, where are you from? And they would inevitably say, West Virginia. Specifically, Beckley. Anyone here from Beckley, West Virginia? Okay, this is the West Coast. But trust me, go back to the East Coast, ask them. Nine times, that, no, that, that's exaggeration. Half the time, they'll say, I'm from Beckley or near Beckley, West Virginia. In fact, I've had a friend of mine say, I was from such as, is that near Beckley? Yeah, how did you know? I said, just, you're from the East Coast. You're from Beckley. Here's the story. Ron Comfort some of you know him. He's associated with Ambassador Baptist College. Ron Comfort read a story of a citywide meeting in southern West Virginia. George Stevens, I don't know this man, was the evangelist. The song leader was Dr. Myron Cedarholm's father. They had a three, so this would have been 100 years ago now. They had a three-week meeting with many churches involved. The evangelist felt as if he was banging his head against the wall because he was preaching his heart out and nothing was happening. And on the last day of the meeting, one of the sponsoring pastors met him. He said, Brother Stevens, if you close the meeting today, last day of the meeting, if you close the meeting today, next Sunday, I am resigning my church. I don't know what it is, but something in this town is eating the heart right out of Christianity. I'm a nervous wreck and I just can't take it anymore. By the way, I'm not using this illustration because that's where I'm at. I'm just, this is a good illustration. <laughs> so the preacher got up to preach his prepared message. Remember, he feels like he's banging his head against the wall. However, God directed his thoughts 
to Joshua 7, where God punished the entire nation of Israel for the sins of one man. That one man's name, you know, is Achan. When the preacher got ready to give the invitation, a lady from the choir jumped to her feet and said, Stop it, preacher, stop it. I've got to get right with God. I'm the Achan in this meeting. She asked that a certain woman, she's on the platform in the choir, asked that a certain woman immediately come to the platform. The members of the church knew what was going on. Those two women had formerly been the best of friends, but for 12 years they had not spoken to each other. When the woman came to the platform, the lady from the choir said, I don't understand how anybody who is a Christian can act as I've acted towards you. It's been my fault, and I want to get right with God. The other woman looked at her and said, it's not been your fault, it's been my fault, and I've got to get right with God too. Then a preacher stood up. Remember, several churches are involved. This is not the preacher who said he was about ready to quit. A different preacher stood up and he turned around to his people and he said, ladies and gentlemen, for years our church has been at a standstill. I found out the reason for that standstill during these three weeks of revival. I've been a cold-hearted, backslidden, professional preacher. The only reason I preached to you is to draw a salary every week. I've had bitterness in my heart toward many of you whom I'm looking at right now, and I want to get right with you, and I want to get right with God, and I want to lead our church to greater heights for God. When he sat down, a teenager stood up, and I, I won't read all these uh, testimonies to you. Here's the point. The service lasted until 2.30 Sunday afternoon, because one after another got up and got right with each other and got right with God. That Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, the evangelist came back to close the meeting. There were chairs in the aisles. There were chairs in the front of the church. And they packed the choir loft. When the evangelist got to the pulpit, it seemed as if God said, George, you don't have to preach because I've already done the preaching. So with that, he gave this simple, simple invitation. Quote, for three weeks, the Spirit of God has been brooding over this place in an unusual way. He wants to do something for us that in all our lives we will never forget. Without any pressure, without any fanfare, if you would like to get saved, make your way down the aisle, end quote. There was a pause. Then a doctor came down the aisle, then a school teacher, then a businessman, then a lawyer. Before that service was over, more than 150 people received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And it all happened because one woman in the choir was willing to get right with the Christian sister. Now turn to Psalm 51, if you would. Psalm 51, because I want you to see why this happens. These are, these are true stories, true events that have happened in the lives of God's people. But sometimes we get carried away with the stories and we forget that they're just illustrations of the God that we serve and how he works. And Psalm 51 tells us how God works. Psalm 51, verse 10. Psalm 51, 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know what we often pray? Create a clean heart in Marcos. He's offended me. I, I'm making this up. Marcus has not offended me. Just yesterday we were out. I, maybe he did offend me yesterday. No, I'm just teasing. That's not true. But we always think it's the other guy's problem. And when revival comes, we realize it's create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. 
Verse 11, cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. And there is joy in revival. But notice verse 13, then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. He, he preaches for three weeks and nothing happens. Nobody gets saved. And then on the last night, he doesn't even preach. He just says, if you need to be saved, come down. And 150 people get saved. Because the 150 people saw a bunch of church people acting like non-church people. And they'd seen it for years. And there was nothing for them in Christianity. And then God got a hold of his own people. And he created in his own people a clean heart. He renewed the right spirit within his own people. And then the community saw that and they said, now that's something we're interested in. I've said it before and the truth is revival never starts with them. Revival always starts with us. God's power to change people doesn't start with people getting saved. God's power to change people starts with his own people getting right with God. And until we're right with God, God's power to save can be, not God's sovereign, I understand that, but it can be hindered. Now, I say can be because you remember Jonah. Boy, if there was a man not right with God, it was Jonah. And yet he saw a whole city converted. But don't be a Jonah. That's not the point. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit in me. Then will I teach transgressors thy way and sinners shall be converted unto thee. In 1 Corinthians 15, 34, 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Paul puts it this way to the Corinthian church. Is the Corinthian church a model church? No. Okay, no. He says this, awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. God's power to change people starts with his own people changing. His own people changing. His own people saying, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. That's where it starts. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Number one, I want us to pray. I want us to pray. I want you to pray. I, sometimes they say, I want us to pray. And you say, yeah, that's right, preacher. You guys should pray. No, 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 no. I want you to pray. I want you to pray. Now, we've had some extra times of prayer, and that you can come to those. You can pray at your own home. I don't care, but I want you to pray. I don't want you to talk about prayer. We don't need more pastors to preach about prayer. Most of you in here know what you're doing. You just need to pray. And let's not be surprised if God's power doesn't flow freely if we're not interested in praying. If you leave the ground mustard out of your dish and it doesn't turn out right, guess whose fault that is? Yours. Sometimes we expect God to work. We just sort of hope, man, keep our fingers crossed. Sure, man, something's got to change. I'll tell you what has to change. Our lack of prayerlessness. Our lack of faith needs to change. I want you to pray. What do, what do I want you to do? I want you to pray. Sorry. Secondly, I want you to ask God to create in you a clean heart. This is a great place. Psalm 51.10, create in me, in Scott, a clean heart. Renew the right spirit in Scott. You can also pray Psalm 139, the last two verses, verses 19 and 20. Search Verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God. Not search my wife. Not search Marcos. 
Not search the plyo in the back, the choir member in the front. No, God, search me. I, I want to, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here, but I, I want you to see why this is such a burden to me. I, I want to get into the new building. I do. I want to get into the new building. But I don't want to get into the new building without God's power. What's the point of that? Really, what's the point of that? We get a new building, we have more bathrooms. I, okay, yeah, that's, that, that's a, there would be joy. There were more bathrooms. I get it. But we don't want to just have a new building for our own comfort. I want to preach during the resurrection season to people who are lost. You have people who, during the resurrection season, they're going to come out to church. They'll never come out to church another time of the year. But for some reason, it's Easter. Sure, I'll come. So we want to preach. We want to get the gospel to them, but not without God's power. My preaching is never going to be good enough to save anybody because preaching doesn't save people. Jesus Christ saves people. Now, he uses the foolishness of preaching. I understand that. But it's the foolishness of preaching that is empowered by God. Even Paul said, I didn't come to you with man's wisdom. I want to get out. I need to. Personally, I'm speaking for myself. I need to get out more and be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I need to do that. My guess is many of you have that same burden to be a more effective witness for Jesus Christ, a witness of his resurrection, a witness of his saving power. But what is it that makes us effective? The power from on high. But wait, Jesus said to his disciples in Jerusalem until that power from on high comes. You will be witnesses for me. But you need the Holy Spirit. I understand that during World War I, as World War I broke out in Europe, the Australian government communicated with the British government. And they said, the Australians said to the British, they said, what can we do to help in the war effort? And the British said, we'll need more ships. You remember World War I, Japanese U-boats circling the British Isles, sinking ships. We'll need more ships. Build us ships. And so the Australians planted more crops. We're not shipbuilders, right? We, we don't know much about building ships. We'll just plant more crops. So they planted crops, lots and lots of crops, more wheat than they'd ever planted before. But guess what? When the crop was harvested, there were no ships to get the crop to Britain. Not only did it not benefit Britain, but there was an epidemic, an outbreak of rats eating the surplus crops. Sometimes they think as Christians, we say, okay, the world, boy, it's just sliding into hell. And yes, it does. It is. So what do we do? Let's build a building. Well, the building's good. Good. Yes. Good building. But not without God's power. Let's start a new program. Yeah, programs are fine and we need some more programs, but not without God's power. Let's go out and knock some more doors. Yes, let's knock some more doors. But without God's power, what's the point of that? I have people knock on my door all the time wanting me to sell things. And I've yet to buy something from them. So what's the difference? I'll tell you the difference. It's not our ability to speak. It's the power of God. Some of you have family members. And they're bound in sin. They're in bondage. And you say, what can we do? We need the power of God. So take time this week to pray, to pray for God's power in your life, in your family. Pray for God's power on this church. Pray for God's power to be at work in our community.
Spend time this week praying for you to experience revival. And then number two, ask God to search you. Not your wife, not your spouse, not your kids, not your parents. Ask God to search you. And when God brings a sin to your mind, confess it and move on. Don't be bound in this idea that somehow you've got to atone for your sin. Jesus already paid the price for your sin. But find that cleansing. Confess to God where you're wrong, where he's right. And ask God to fill our church with new, with renewed power from on high. Father, so often I come to you and I, I think I know what I need to do. Forgive me for my arrogance, thinking that I control the situation. I'm asking this morning that you would control the situation, that you would exert your control on the members who are Elmira Baptist Church. That you would burden me to pray. That you would burden my sisters and my brothers in Christ to pray. Lord, that you'd search me. That you'd burden my sisters and my brothers to pray that you would search them. And Lord, I know there's sin in the camp. We know there is. I want you to point out in my heart and in our hearts my brothers' and sisters' hearts, what that sin is, so we can confess it. Lord, so you can break through, create in me a clean heart, create in us a clean heart, renew a right spirit in us, and then we'll teach transgressors your way. Then sinners will be converted to you. So we ask for that, Father. I ask that we not be distracted by our work, not be distracted by our families, not be distracted by an upcoming vacation, not be distracted by building a building, or adding on to our houses or cleaning, but we'd focus on what's really important, prayer, time with you, your cleansing power. Father, help us. Help us. We need to be the people of God. So help us, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.